Good morning, C3 Church. My name is David Chakran Orion. I'm a good friend of Pastor Gene, especially through our relationship with uh, Mission India. Uh, I serve as the National Director for Mission India, engaging the U.S. Church uh, to help plant churches all throughout India, especially among the unreached. So you'll see on the website there, missionindia.org, we are a ministry uh, that reaches India. India has more unreached people than any other nation uh, around the world. And when I mean unreached, I mean that there is no Christian in their community, no church, no gospel presence. And what we try to do is we raise up church planters that live in the country to go out and plant churches in these areas that have no gospel presence. So currently there are about 400 million people in India who have not yet heard the gospel. Uh, so there's still a lot of work to do in that. And I want to thank C3 Church for your partnership in making that happen and making sure that these unreached places uh, get to hear the gospel so that people can know Jesus Christ. A uh, little bit about myself real quick. I have been married for 17 years. I've pastored for 16 years in the Cincinnati area, and this is going to be the shocker, and this is where you need to pray for me. I have five daughters, okay? 14, 12, 11, 9, and 7. So put me on your prayer list. I'm going to need it for the next 50 years, okay? So anyways, this morning, I want to turn our attention to two passages in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, so you can turn in your Bible, you can turn on your Bible app, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 11 and 12 in chapter 2, and then we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And the title of my message this morning is Kingdom Perspective. What does it mean to have a kingdom perspective? And here's a couple of the questions that we're going to answer this morning. Number one is, what is my role on this earth as a follower of Jesus Christ? What am I supposed to do uh, in a world that does not like Christians, that is hostile towards Christians? And the second question we're going to answer is, what will it cost me as a follower of Jesus Christ? These two questions are instrumental in our walk with God to help us understand and gain perspective as we engage our communities and the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me bring this definition a little bit closer when I talk about having a kingdom perspective. It's found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says this about Jesus. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. There is something incredible that happens when we trust Christ as our Savior. We are taken from the kingdom of darkness, where we live for ourselves, where we live for our flesh. And when God saves us, he puts us into his kingdom, where our desires are for him and to please him with our lives. There's something that we need to understand when we're looking at having a kingdom perspective. There is the earthly kingdom. There is all the stuff you and I see around us. Now, if you're like me, when I look at the world around me, it's not very encouraging. It's going crazy. People are selfish. People are into themselves. People are wanting to harm others. There is this earthly kingdom where people live for themselves, but then there is this invisible kingdom that lives in the hearts of Christians who lives in so Jesus' presence lives in the heart of the church, and we get to tell people about this kingdom that radically changes lives. Do you believe Jesus changes lives? Absolutely. And so that is the kingdom that we need to be focused on. That is why I want to go to the book of 1 Peter. 
Let me share with you a little bit of context about 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written between 60 to 65 AD. Uh, you're going to try to figure out who the author might be. I'll give you a clue. It was probably Peter, okay? Peter writes this book from Rome, and he writes this book to a group of believers in what is known in Asia Minor, or what we know as modern-day Turkey. So when you look at chapter 1, he addresses Christians who probably were made up of Jews and Gentiles that were living in this area called Asia Minor. And the context of this chapter, excuse me, of this book is, is that these believers are living under some difficult circumstances. That they're, they're basically people who are uh, uh, different from the culture. The culture is looking at them and saying, hey, you're not engaging in the same practices and things that we are. Why are you doing this? And so they're experiencing difficulties. They may have even been experiencing persecution. They weren't like the church in the U.S. You couldn't appeal your religious freedoms to the government. They didn't have an advocate that they could go to. There were no laws that they could say, hey, this is what it means for me to have religious freedom. No, the Bible says here they were believers that were under intense scrutiny and persecution. So chapter 1, Peter says to them, he says, I want you to understand that you have a great and living hope because of a resurrected Savior. I know you're going through trials, I know that you're going through difficulties, but I want you to have a heavenly focus. I want you to focus on what God has in store for you. You know what's interesting to me is that sometimes freedoms can be a detriment to our faith, can they not? Because we can say, you know what, we have religious freedom, we can go to church, we can do all of these things, and we end up taking it for granted. And yet what we find around the world is that areas that are the most persecuted is where the church is growing the fastest. Because believers have to stand in the gap. They don't have room to compromise. They don't have room to go back and forth. They are willing to say, I am a follower of Christ, and if it costs me, so be it. It's what the believers in 1 Peter were experiencing. Notice in chapter 2, I'm going to look at verse 11 and 12. There's two words that I love that Peter uses in this passage, and they're so applicable for us today. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 11, and it says this, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now, He's begging them. It's not like he's saying he's getting on his knees and crying and saying, hey, why don't you come back to church? We really miss you. Why, why don't you like us? That's not what he's trying to say. He's trying to encourage them and say this, live in a way that reflects the grace of God. He says in, in this context that you're in, you're under difficult circumstances, you might be experiencing persecution, but I want you to know that you should still show the grace of God when other people simply do not like you for being a follower of Christ. You know, one thing that I've noticed when I read the Bible, and especially when you look at the New Testament, when you look at the apostles, they're always writing to the church. They're not writing to the culture in general. They're not saying, hey, culture in this time, why don't you be nice to the Christians? Why don't you stop persecuting them? Why don't you stop throwing them in jail? The writers always talk to the church and say, you need to live in a manner that is worthy of the name of Jesus. So that when people look at your life, they will see Christ in you. 
It is the same message that the Bible has for us today. You and I are supposed to live on a level that reflects the life of Jesus Christ. The world around us is going to deteriorate. The world around us is not going to like Christians, but that is not an excuse for us to not live for Christ. That is even more of a reason why we should be engaged in gospel and kingdom work. He says, beloved, I beg you. Actually, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Same thing there. He's encouraging them. He's imploring them. And then he uses two words to describe them. The first word that he uses is the words sojourners. Here's what this means. Some translations say aliens. Your Bible might say foreigners. The word literally means alongside the house. Well, what is the deeper definition of this? It was a word that was used to convey a person who lives in a country not his own and is therefore a foreigner. This is a term that is used to describe a Christian, a person who lives in a country that is not his own, and they are a foreigner. It is a Christian who does not belong to the system of the world, but lives alongside those who do. Does that describe you and I? Absolutely. We we live in a country, we may have a citizenship, we may have a passport that says that we belong to this country, but when we think about it from a kingdom perspective, where Jesus is ruling and reigning in our hearts... We live in this country, but it's not our own, and we are foreigners in this land. The second word that he uses is the word pilgrims. Some translations use the word strangers. It is a word which is a synonym for sojourners. It means someone who is a temporary resident. It is a reference to a visitor who travels through a country while pausing for a brief stay. Do you you see what Peter is trying to say to these believers? He's saying, guys, I I know the culture around you does not like you. I know you're experiencing difficult times. I know that you're experiencing persecution. But I want to remind you of something. This land, this earth that you're living in is not your home. You're just a foreigner. You're simply passing through. Now, on the way to Naples, I had to make a late night stop at a gas station. One of the things about stopping at a late night gas station is you have no idea what the area around the gas station looks like, right? Anybody ever been there? You know, you're driving, you're, you're on empty and you're like, I've got to pull over because that's what the sign on the interstate says. And then you pull over and you're looking around and you're like, something's about to go down. And so instead of filling up the full tank, you fill up like 10 bucks just to get you like to a nicer area. You're glad that you're simply passing through and not making your residence in that area. It is the same thing for us as believers. You and I need to understand that the time that God has given to us, whether it's 70, 80, or 90 years, we're simply passing through because I'm looking forward to a better country, and that country is heaven. That is my ultimate home. You know, as a Christian... You should never feel at home on this earth. You should never become comfortable like, man, this is where I need to be. This is great. This feels good. This has everything that I want. As a believer, you and I should never be comfortable on earth. Why? Because it isn't our home. If you begin to get comfortable here, get into the Bible. 
Because that's not what God is calling us to. I love Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. It says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we might be citizens of the United States. We have a passport. We have a birth certificate that shows it. But when I belong to Jesus, I understand that my citizenship is in heaven and no one can mess with it. You know, you look at the word citizenship in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Here's what it means. It refers to the place where one has official status. The commonwealth where one's name is recorded on the register of citizens. If you trusted in Christ, your name is in the register of heaven. And it belongs to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, it says this, when it's talking about all those incredible believers that we read about in the hall of faith, as many reference, it says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return, but now they desire better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. A kingdom perspective helps me understand that I don't belong here, I belong there. And that one day I will be reunited with my Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll be united with Him, and I will forever be a citizen of heaven. That's what a kingdom perspective says. Jesus, how can I serve you as I'm simply passing through this earth? Notice what else he says in verse uh, verse number 11. He says this, he says, abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, automatically, in our minds, it goes to something about sexual immorality, but it also encompasses everything about humanity's sinful nature. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. All of us have some type of of clutter in our lives. We've got stuff. We've got busy things happening, and there's, there are, there are uh, things on our schedule, there's opportunities, there's stuff that is hindering our walk with God. Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's just day-to-day activity. Peter is telling these believers, I want you to abstain from things that take your attention from being kingdom-minded. Do you have to run your kids to ball games? Absolutely. Do you have to take them to school? Absolutely. Do you have to go to work? Absolutely. Do you, are there things in life that you have to do? Yes. But when we look at our lives, there are things that are consuming our thoughts, our affections that could be going towards Christ, but instead they're spent on the pleasures of this world. I want you to think about this one statement. Whatever consumes your time is what you worship. Ask yourself, what am I worshiping? What has my thoughts, what has my affections, what what makes me stay up at night and think about that thing over and over again? Whatever consumes our heart and our time, that's what we end up worshiping. And God desires that we worship Him and worship Him alone. 
Peter says, abstain from fleshly lust. Why? Look at the next part of it. It says this, which war against the soul. That word war there, it is a long-term, it means to carry out a long-term military campaign. There is always going to be a battle for your hearts and minds. There's always going to be something to distract you. The book of James tells us that our flesh sways us, right? Our flesh has evil intent and we want to act upon it. But then there's also a spiritual battle that is trying to take us away from fulfilling God's purposes for our lives. Peter is telling these believers, abstain from these fleshly lusts because it is a war against your soul. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 to 5 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Do all of us have some work to do in that area? Absolutely. But note that there is a battle for your heart and your mind and your affection and your worship. Ask yourself, what is consuming that time? Verse 12, he says to them, he says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. The word honorable there, it means rich and varied in significance. It is beautiful in outward form. It is the highest form of visible goodness. Sometimes when people make me upset, I want to retaliate. Amen? Right? We want to, right? Like when someone does us wrong, We want to do something wrong back to them. Why? Because in your mind, you're saying, they're going to get away with it. Notice what Peter does. Peter writes to the church in Asia Minor, and he tells them to do something I do not like to do. He says this, even when you are being mistreated, even when you are being persecuted, even though you're living as pilgrims and sojourners on this earth, let your conduct be honorable. Come on, Peter, don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. But Peter says, but you're a representative of Jesus Christ. Live in a way that reflects his love. Why why is this so important that our, our conduct be honorable? Number one, redeemed people will behave in a redeemed manner. Is your life been changed by Jesus? If so, you will react in a way that reflects the love of Jesus. Redeemed people will behave in a redeemed manner. Number two, redeemed people represent the Redeemer. People at your workplace know that you're a Christian, and when tough times come, they see the way that you react. In our families, in our schools, in our context that we are in during the week, people know that we're a follower of Christ and we have to understand that we represent the Redeemer. You just don't get to put Jesus on on Sunday morning and then when you get home, you take it off and you live for yourself the rest of the week. It's a high calling. But number three is also important. Redeemed people want to see unredeemed people won over to the Redeemer. I want to see people that don't know Christ won over to him, and God somehow chooses to use me to fulfill that purpose. You know, one of the things that's absolutely astounding to me is that God could save everyone on his own. He doesn't need me, right? 
And sometimes I'm like, God, why don't you just do that? This is too difficult. Just come out here, just save everybody, you know, take us to heaven and we're all going to be okay. But you realize that when we get to play a part in it, we get to kind of see what God's done in us. And we get to see the transforming work of the gospel in the lives of people all around us. God chooses to use me so that I can experience the joy of Jesus using me as a vessel to reach people around him. I get to partake in that joy. He says, have your conduct honorable. Now, he says, do it among the Gentiles. You know, we know in the New Testament, the word Gentiles uh, was used for people that weren't Jewish or people of the world. It's a reference to the nations or the unsaved world. A couple things for us to understand. Number one, the world is a mission field and you are the missionary. Do you realize that Pastor Gene cannot reach everyone that you come in contact with on a weekly basis? But you know who can? You can. Where God has placed you is your mission field, and you are the missionary caring about the life-saving message of the gospel. That's important. Number two, we are called to be a gospel influence to people whose worldview is different than ours. Are there some strange people out there in our world today? Absolutely. Some weird people, some hostile people, some people that disagree with us. You know what Jesus is saying to us? Those are the people I want you to share the gospel with. People that don't align with your worldview. People that are different than you. Why? Because eternity is at stake. And we have the compelling message of the gospel He continues here in this verse, he says this, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Two important points I want to highlight about those verses. Number one is that Christians will be ridiculed. If you expect the world around you to like you for being a Christian, it's not going to happen. As hard as you may try, because if you live for Jesus and you tell others about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, you will be ridiculed. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 15, verse 18 to 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. If you are a follower of Christ and you're living the way that Jesus has told us, if you're living according to the way of the Bible... And if you're telling others about Christ, that they need to repent, that they need to trust Christ as their Savior, you will be ridiculed. Why? The world is not a friend of God. The Bible tells us over and over again that there is enmity between God and man. The kingdoms of this world are hostile against God. And we can expect the same thing. Christians will be ridiculed. But number two, this is also important. Let your testimony silence your accusers. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 says this, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When the world looks at you, Peter is telling these believers, he's saying, look, when they speak against you as evildoers, they can have all kinds of accusations thrown against you, but they can still observe your life and understand that you are a follower of Christ. You know, William Barclay, a historian, has this quote about the early church. Here's what he says. He says, Christians were falsely accused of great crimes in the early church. Pagans said that at communion, Christians ate the flesh and drank the blood of a baby in a cannibalistic ritual. They said that Christians' agape feasts were wild orgies. They said that Christians were antisocial because they did not participate in society's immoral entertainment. They said that Christians were atheists because they did not worship idols. But over time, it was clear that Christians were not immoral people, and it was shown by their lives. The striking fact of history is that by their lives, the Christians actually did defeat the slander of the heathen in the early part of the third century. Celsus made the famous and the most systematic attack of all upon the Christians, in which he accused them of ignorance and foolishness and superstition and all kinds of things, but never immorality. If someone was to observe your life, would they come to the conclusion that you are a follower of Christ? How do you deal with tough circumstances? How do you deal with difficulties? How do you deal with heartbreak? You know, as human beings, we all struggle through these things, but yet there is still this underlying hope that this isn't all. This is temporary. It's simply passing. So chapter 2, Peter calls them out. He says, you live different because you're a follower of Christ. You have a high calling. You're a representative of Jesus. But then he transitions to chapter 3. And he says, now, if they were to ask you, if they were to look at your life, how are you going to respond? Let's look at verse 15 and 16 in chapter 3, and then we'll be done. In verse 15, he says this, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. You know, many times when you're reading your Bible, you'll see the word but or therefore, and usually it connects the thought that was there before. He's connecting the word but there in verse 13 and 14. He's contrasting it. Look at chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He says this, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Basically, have no fear of them as you're reverencing Christ as Lord. He says, sanctify. What does that mean? It comes from the same root word as holy. You all know this word, uh, sanctify. It means to set apart or to consecrate. You know, we see many examples of this that are there throughout the Old Testament. But in this context, it means giving preeminence to Christ in our adoration and worship. Here's what Peter is saying to you. I know they're going to persecute you. I know that they're going to harm you. I know that they're going to say all kinds of evil things against you. But even when that happens, set apart the Lord Jesus Christ in your hearts. Matthew Henry, a commentator, says this, We sanctify the Lord God in our hearts when we with sincerity and fervency adore Him. 
when our thoughts of him are awful and reverent, when we rely upon his power, trust to his faithfulness, submit to his wisdom, imitate his holiness, and give him the glory due to his most illustrious perfections. Set apart. He is holy. He is perfect. He is just. He is righteous. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And then he says this, always be ready. What does that mean? Believers need to be constantly prepared and ready to respond when it comes to sharing our faith or giving a defense of our faith. I'll give you a good example of this. If you're having a good conversation with someone at your workplace, maybe it's at a ball game, maybe it's at a gym, and you start to talk to them about Christianity, and they're like, oh, you're a follower of Jesus. Hey, I've, I've got a, quite a few questions about the Bible. What you shouldn't do is pull out Pastor Gene's card and say, hey, my pastor knows a lot about the Bible. Here's his card. Why don't you call him and talk to him? It's true, Pastor Gene does know the Bible, right? We've had conversations. He listens to audio Bible every day, all the time, which is great. But do you realize every single one of us as individuals is called to share our faith? We are called to know our Bibles, to know why we believe what we believe. Peter is telling these believers, always be ready. Why? Because there's always opportunity And the more we're engaged in the Word of God, the more we're studying, the more we're understanding. It's going to provide opportunities for us to share the gospel with those who are asking us questions about our faith. What should we be ready to do? We should be ready to give a defense. I love this word, defense. It is a Greek word, apologia, right? Or apologia, however you want to say it. It is where we get our English word for apologetics. Here's what it means in the original form. It was used in a courtroom to give a formal defense, but it was also the ability to answer questions in a reasoned manner. Why was this word so important? Here, let me give you some background. A cultivated Greek believed that it was the mark of an intelligent man that he was able to give and to receive a word concerning his actions and beliefs. He was expected to intelligently and temperately discuss matters of conduct. To do so, we must know what we believe. We must have thought it out. We must be able to state it intelligently and intelligibly. Our faith must be a first-hand discovery and not a second-hand story. It is one of the tragedies of the modern situation that there are so many church members who, if they were asked what they believe, could not articulate what they believe and why they believe it. The Christian must go through the mental and spiritual toil of thinking out his faith so that he can tell what he believes and why. Isn't that convicting? It's not just Pastor Gene's job or the person that teaches Sunday school or the elder. Every single believer must be ready to articulate why they believe what they believe to a world that is asking. Notice the transition that he makes here. He says to give a defense to everyone who asks for the hope that is in you. You know what was happening in Peter's time? Peter is basically saying, when they ridicule you and mock you and persecute you, your lifestyle and the way that you react is going to cause them to come up to you and say, hey, I was persecuting you. I was trying to harm you, but you responded to me in love and grace. What's that all about? It sets up a way for you to evangelize. 
You know, there's so many countries around the world where Christians are being persecuted, and those who are persecuting Christians are coming to faith in Christ because they see the way that Christians are responding to them. One of the worst things you can have is when a Christian is harmed or persecuted, respond back in that same unworldly manner. Peter is saying, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you. You know what's happening? They're coming to Christians. A couple, three things here I want to share with you. Number one, people are taking note of our lives. They're taking notes. You may not think they're watching you, but they're watching you. Number two, people are asking the question, what is different about them? Why should I trust this Jesus? What is there in this person's life that I would desire that I don't already have? Number three, people will always hold Christians to a higher standard. Have you noticed that? Christians are always held to a higher standard. And we must be ready to engage. Here's what he says. Be ready to give a defense to people that come and ask you, what? For the hope that is in you. Another word which can be used here is the word account. Account means word or message and is challenging the believers to speak words which convey the hope of the gospel. What is the hope of the gospel? The hope of the gospel is Christ in us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. People are going to come to you and they're going to say, you've gone through circumstances, you're experiencing illness, you're experiencing heartache in your life. Why are you responding in such a joyful and encouraging and hopeful manner? It opens up the opportunity for you and I to say, it's the hope of Christ in me. I, haven't had, I don't have this all figured out. I don't have all the right answers. I don't necessarily know even what, what my next step is, but I know that Christ holds my life in his hands and it's going to be okay. That is the hope of the gospel. How many of you have ever heard of a gentleman by the name of Polycarp? Raise your hand. Polycarp? He was a disciple of the apostle John. John, the one that wrote the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, disciple of Christ. He has an incredible story here, and I'll finish up because I want to be sensitive to time. He's an incredible testimony about his life, and I'll, let me read this to you. It says this, Polycarp's greatest contribution to Christianity may be his martyred death. His martyrdom stands as one of the most well-documented events of antiquity. The emperors of Rome had unleashed bitter attacks against the Christians during this period, and members of the early church recorded many of the persecutions and deaths. Polycarp was arrested on the charge of being a Christian, a member of a politically dangerous cult whose rapid growth needed to be stopped. Amidst an angry mob, the Roman proconsul took pity on such a gentle old man and urged Polycarp to proclaim, Caesar is Lord. If only Polycarp would make this declaration and offer a small pinch of incense to Caesar's statue, he would escape torture and death. To this, Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
Steadfast in his stand for Christ, Polycarp refused to compromise his beliefs and thus was burned alive at the stake. What an amazing story of someone who was willing to stand in the midst of difficulty. I conclude with this. Peter says this, people that give you, ask you for the hope that is in you, do it with meekness and fear. It's all about our tone and mannerism. Meekness, it is a word that can be translated gentleness. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about this. Speaking the truth in love, don't let any corrupt word come out of your mouth, only what is necessary for edification. Meekness was also a virtue that was displayed by Christ. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Be gentle with people. Why? Because you should have a reverence for Christ. Notice what he says. Do it with meekness and fear. When we are responding to someone... We do it knowing that we have a deep devotion towards God and His truth. And at the same time, we respect our fellow man. You know, one of the things that I've noticed, especially in the West and in the Western church, is that our tone isn't really nice. Right? Have you noticed that? The way we interact with people, the way that we talk to people that may disagree with us, Our tone starts to get very aggressive. It doesn't look very Christ-like. And we sit there and argue. Have you ever seen arguments on Facebook? You're like, no one is convincing anyone of this point, but they're still going. I'm like, there's 50,000 comments and no one has agreed on a single thing. Right? We, We see this back and forth. Here's the lesson here. And I want you to remember this. You might have won the argument, but did you win them? Always leave opportunity. Always have that bridge to be able to share the gospel. How do we have a kingdom perspective? Understand that we're simply pilgrims and sojourners. We're simply passing through. But even as we're passing through, we have been mandated to proclaim the gospel even when it is difficult. Let us all take a stand for the gospel and be faithful in sharing Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for everyone who's here. God, I thank you for your word, how convicting it is, that it calls us out of complacency and that it calls us to a higher calling to serve you and to make your gospel known. Lord, I pray for this church family. Lord, the the things that are on everyone's heart as they came in this morning, you know what they are. And Father, as they're trying to seek you for answers, maybe they're going through difficult circumstances, It might even be besetting sin in their life. Lord, may you free them uh, through the hope of your gospel. And may people come to know you as their Savior as a result of this church. Father, I thank you for Pastor Gene, and I thank you for his ministry. Uh, I pray that you would continue to bless him and encourage him, Lord. May you give him the rest that he needs as as he's away from this church right now with his family. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen the leadership here, the teams that serve, And Lord, I pray that you would fill them with your joy uh, as they seek to make your gospel known in this community. Lord, we thank you for your love and we thank you for your faithfulness. For I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.